This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Valchunas. Eric, there's a category that we haven't really spent that much time talking about on Trillions, which is kind of incredible, but that's alternatives. And why why is that significant right now? Yeah, because the 60 and the 40, the equities and bonds that most people have as a portfolio, is not really uh, working like people thought this year. Uh, the 40, which is the bonds, isn't really hedging the 60. Normally, that happens, and that's good, and that's why you use bonds. But this year, they're both down. And to me, that has opened the door to alternatives, which is literally what the name is. And I define alternatives as investment strategies that have non-correlated return streams to stocks and bonds. So like they might have zero correlation or, or just a very small correlation, and therefore, they can sometimes go up or go down less than the 60 and the 40, and they typically are lower vol. And in that category exists a lot of hedge fund strategies. So contrary to popular belief, um, not all hedge funds are trying to like crush the market. Uh, a lot are trying to deliver something that might be um, have a higher sharp ratio, which means a decent return stream, but at lower vol and with non-correlated returns. So that category has grown a ton this year. It's still small at $5.1 billion, but it, the percentage growth is is big. And it's been waiting maybe 15 years for this moment because stocks and bonds have just gone up uh, easily. And uh, it hasn't really been like something people search for because why bother if you're 60 and 40 is doing fine? There's a whole different ballgame now. And so I think alternatives are having somewhat of a moment. So we're going to talk about hedge fund strategies in an ETF wrapper this time. Joining us is going to be Andrew Beer of Dynamic Beta, Bob Elliott of Unlimited, and Kathy Burton, hedge fund reporter with Bloomberg News. This time on Trillions, hedge funds. Andrew, Bob, Kathy, welcome to Trillions. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Okay, Andrew, I want to start with you. Um, why hedge fund strategy in an ETF wrapper? Why do this at all? So... Eric mentioned this idea that we've been waiting 15 years for this moment. I've actually been working 15 years for this moment. So yes, you have. Um, uh, I've been doing this an incredibly long time. Uh, you know, we we knew that this breakdown of stocks and bonds would come at some point. You know, what we were living through in the 2010s was very, very unusual. And, you know, about seven or eight years ago, we started to focus on the strategy that we thought actually had the most diversification bang for the buck if you're starting with a 60-40 portfolio. And it's a strategy called managed futures. And the easiest way to describe managed futures is it's like flood insurance where you get paid to wait. That's all you need to know about it from, from a portfolio perspective. And so we saw it as one of these areas where, you know, previously it had done really, really well during the dot-com crisis. It had done really, really well during the great financial crisis. And the big question was, would it do well in another big crisis like that? And now the strategy is up overall around 30% this year. And we've been very, very fortunate to uh, manage an ETF that's in that area. Drill down. What is it? What's in the portfolio? If I pull up the holding screen, what am I going to see? And it's active. So what are you doing every and, day? And by the way, the ticker DBMF, right? Yes, sir. So yeah. So so what what these strategies do is basically there are a bunch of hedge funds that are looking for 
trying to determine whether an asset is going to go up or down. Is oil, if oil's been going up, is going to keep going up. If rates have been going up, are they going to keep going up? If equities are going down, are they going to keep going down? And so the way that they express this is through financial derivatives called futures contracts, because these are very, very efficient ways to bet on things going up or down. And so what we do in DBMF is we basically try to piggyback off of the core trades that these largest hedge funds are doing. So when they're betting that oil is going up, we simply express it the same way through a futures contract. If they're betting rates are going to keep going up, we do the same thing, but also through things like treasury futures. So when you look at DBMF, what you basically see is a big pile of cash and cash-like instruments and then a handful of derivative contracts uh, through which we express those views. Okay, Bob, what are you doing that's different? Because And you have a you came from Bridgewater, right? So I'm curious, you know, that's a did. world's biggest hedge fund. Like, what did you pick up there and what are you doing with your ticker HFND? Well, I, I spent the first 20 years of my career basically in 2 and 20 institutions uh, and, like and 2 and 20 for those not in the know. 2 and is... 20 being uh, the typical fee structure of a hedge fund. So 2% management fee, 2% of AUM management fee, 20% of performance. And what I saw over time was that um, hedge funds uh, and 2 and 20 managers generate great returns. They're, they're very good at delivering alpha or sort of returns above standard index investing. But what they do is they end up charging so many fees that the investor who invests in those products is typically worse off. Plus, they're always in structures that are uh, typically unaccessible to the everyday investor. And so that got me to thinking about whether there was a way to sort of bring a kind of low-cost indexing idea that obviously has totally changed stocks and bonds, but bring it to the hedge fund space. Now, the goal there being to track the gross of fees returns of the total hedge fund industry and all the different strategies that make up that. So not, you know, it includes things like equity long short, fixed income arbitrage, global macro, managed futures, as Andrew has highlighted, and basically create an index replication that looks like the hedge fund industry in the same way you might buy an index, rep, you know, an index of the S&P 500 or an index that covers the global bond market. And so that's really what HFND is all about, is is creating that index-like product for the hedge fund space. Okay, Kathy, you've been covering hedge funds for a really long time. This feels like an existential crisis almost. It's like these guys have hedge fund industry. It has this magic formula that only they know. They can charge a significant uh, amount of money for, have institutional clients with gigantic pools of money that they can draw upon. But, you know, an ETF strategy, this opens the door like, I can invest like a hedge fund now, right? So how is this going over within the hedge fund community? Well, I think right now it's still a pretty small part, but it is a bit more of a threat, I would say, because there, although there's some funds that are doing very well this year, uh, there are a lot that have not been able to take advantage of, you know, to be short when the market drops. They've just done a pretty poor job overall. So I feel like it is a bit of a, a moment where we might see more people. And just give us the lay of the land of the hedge fund world right now. Um, I don't look at it every day. Last I heard, it's about $3 trillion. Has that, that assets been going up or down? We talk about active mutual funds a lot on here, and they're seeing a, like $800 billion in outflows this year. How are hedge funds holding up through the whole sort of uh, rise of passive? I mean, are they maintaining their niche? Are institutions still like as in love with them? Are they maybe forcing their fees down? Are they also getting like some fee compression? What's the state of things over there? 
Uh, it really varies. I would say overall fees have come down, but for certain funds that have done well, the fees have actually gone up in some instances. Overall, the assets have more or less kind of stabilized at that $3 trillion level. Uh, certainly, a lot of strategies like long-short equity have lost assets both because of the market fall and people pulling money. But at the same time, other the, some of the largest funds have made money this year, so that's helped bring assets up a little bit. So that's the stabilizing aspect of it. Both you guys are looking to democratize hedge funds in general. I get it. It's clear. Here's the thing, and what I, you know, I've learned about institutions, I feel like they they want exclusivity. They almost think the ETF is like the, the public pool down the street. I want the private pool in my backyard or at least the country club. I'm not, I, I need to do better things than that. And then on the flip side, you have advisors who may not even understand hedge funds enough to use them. So I sometimes think alts might get caught in the middle of both of those worlds or have challenges selling to institutions who want exclusivity and advisors who may not totally even understand what you're talking about and get scared of underperformance. So back to the point about fees, right? So, so the hedge fund industry is not going away, right? In fact, and the, and, and the hedge fund industry serves a very, very valuable function for those institutional investors. Their products, they can assemble their own cars from hundreds of different you know, parts basically to meet their particular risk reward criteria. And most frankly, as much as they talk about it, they really don't care how much they're paying in fees, right? It's just, I mean, yes, fees have come down, but relative to the net of fee performance of hedge funds, they obviously haven't come down very much. And they're going up in certain circumstances. Our business plan is very different, right? You've got six or seven trillion dollars of ETF assets out there. You have a 15-year history of pretty bad products, hedge fund products being put into ETFs. One of our competitors launched in the beginning of 2011. It's down 15% over 11 years, where the hedge funds that it's supposed to be mimicking are up 50% over that period of time. Uh, one of Bob's competitors has delivered 2% per annum since 2007 or 2008, or the beginning of 2009. So when you talk about democratization, if these are your options for democratization, don't bother. And that was the lesson of the 2010s. Let's talk about the competitors. I won't bring up the tickers, but there are some hedge fund ETFs that have an equity bias in them. They're only partially hedged. And I think that was to try to sell them to advisors in the uptimes that, so that you still got, you got that like beta kick. But now beta is bad and it's maybe making the actual hedge working less. Is that what you're talking about here? Whereas yours are more all in hedge? But it's also the complexity of it. Our, our mission is advisor education, right? And in fact, in fact, when we built... Are the two ETFs that we run. The idea is that they are supposed to be incredibly simple and elegant building blocks for advisors who want to use them in their portfolio. They're supposed to understand how they work underneath the hood and what it is we're trying to achieve. And we have to build a better language around it because we have to be able to explain it in a way not where somebody gets off the phone understanding what we're talking about, but three weeks later, not having thought about it for three weeks, they've got to be able to sit down with their client who knows nothing about the space and be able to communicate the value proposition and why it's there. And so... You know, our view has been that there have been a lot of hedge fund-like products that have been put into ETF wrappers that never should have been there. Some of them are designed to, as you say, they are almost in a no man's land between the really, really dynamic thematic type products that people buy and sell every day on a regular basis and the asset allocators who want something where they can say, I want this strategy and I want it in a predictable, simple, straightforward way that I can explain to my clients. 
I think one of the most interesting things when I talk to advisors is nearly every advisor I talk to is looking for alternatives. They appreciate and recognize the challenges that 6040 has had, will have uh, on a forward-looking basis. And so they need to have something that gives their clients something better, frankly, than they can do on their own to just invest in, in index investing. And the problem those advisors face is when they look at alternatives, they see structures that are very unpalatable. So they see traditional LP positions that are highly concentrated. They see those positions that are very tax inefficient or those structures are very tax inefficient. And they say to themselves, this is a hard way. It is hard to get access to alternative investment products. And so I think what they're looking for, the problem is clear in terms of the need for alternatives and the desire for a simplified tax efficient structure that the ETF provides. And so they're looking for institutional quality, world-class investors coming to the ETF market offering those sorts of products. And I think, you know, Andrew and, and I both have that sort of pedigree and experience that we know how institutional quality hedge fund strategies work and can put those into the package that that is much more accessible to investors and advisors. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So I'm curious, when you're talking to advisors, the the idea of a non-correlated asset very appealing obviously how do you break down how you achieve that we've heard we've heard how how andrew does it but how do you do it well what we do is we uh, use machine learning techniques to basically look over the shoulder of the asset managers there's a lot of information that you can see in uh, in what managers are doing from their pattern of returns, and that's reported regularly. In 13Fs, basically, right? No, not 13Fs. 13Fs have some issues because they only give you a very uh, small slice, or a small picture into to what they're doing. If you're a sophisticated uh, hedge fund, you're doing a lot more than what's in that 13F report. And so instead, what we do is we look at the pattern of returns. And having built proprietary hedge fund strategies across various hedge fund styles, we can look at those pattern of returns we can compare it to a plausible set of exposures that they might have on or might drive their returns at any point in time and basically solve for what's that portfolio look like 
that is generating the returns that we're seeing. So you're like reverse engineering a portfolio using machine learning. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that's very important is you can obviously solve for any particular point in time with a regression that will give you answers that who knows exactly whether it's right or wrong. What we do with, frankly, machine learning techniques that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago, what we're able to do is solve for the path of of positions that a, that a hedge fund manager might have on through time, which then helps us understand uh, more effectively what positions they have on now. And that's what we use to inform uh, what we put on in terms of the, the assets backing the ETF. So it's really Really, what we're trying to do is sort of infer the wisdom of the whole hedge fund community. Are they long growth stocks or short growth stocks? Do they, are they long bonds or are they short bonds? We're trying to infer that from the aggregate hedge fund community and then put that together in something that's you know simple and easy to access for the everyday investor. How do you decide who's in and out of that index? We look at everybody. Uh, one of the great uh, lessons uh, I think many institutional investors have learned, particularly the most sophisticated, is that it's very hard to predict exactly which manager is likely to be successful and which one isn't. The most successful and sophisticated sovereign wealth funds and, and other institutional managers, what they do is they build a diversified portfolio of hedge funds, of 30 or 50 hedge funds that are world-class in nature. And they basically say, we don't know exactly which one's going to perform well or poorly at any particular point in time. But I put together 30 or 50 hedge funds together and that's going to create a nice diversified portfolio that over time is going to go up and to the right. It's going to generate pretty good returns. And so that's really, we're sort of drawing on that expertise and saying, instead of looking at just one strategy or one manager, build a aggregated portfolio, a diversified portfolio, which is likely over time to be more consistent than just focusing on one manager or one strategy. Do you ever hedge over that in any way? I mean, what we're doing uh, with HFND, it, we we don't apply any uh, of our own proprietary views or or uh, or or other uh, or other strategies on top of it. What we're trying to do is is match the hedge fund index gross of fees, to be clear, which is a important consideration because uh, when you look at hedge fund returns gross of fees, they're pretty good. Uh, you know, you you have returns that are better than stocks, a bit better than stocks, and volatility that's about half what you'd see holding a stock index return. So that's a that's a pretty good return stream that most investors and advisors would want in their portfolio. It's just uh, typically they're too expensive to access uh, or, or you know the fees are too high or you can't access the, be- the best ones because they won't take your money. And so that's what we're trying to do is really create that democratization of that diversified low-cost index fund concept just for the for the hedge fund space. So what's the best way to use your your product, Andrew? Because I have to guess, looking back at 10 years, it must have been frustrating. Everything, everything everywhere was going up. And yet you had to kind of like wait for a moment and that moment may have arrived now. And so you, you're, you know, you're selling picks on the way to a gold rush all of a sudden. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm curious, like now that this is happening, how are you telling investors to think about using the product now and going forward? So um, to, to, to stick with my flood insurance analogy. Fl- flood, not gold rushes? Right. <laughs> so, so, um, so look, you can overpay for flood insurance. And if a flood doesn't happen for five or six years, you've probably given up your policy when you need it. Uh, that happened to a lot of people in this space. Uh, the managed future space on the hedge fund side was notorious. And actually, Bloomberg wrote an article 
nearly a decade ago talking about how 89% of all gains in the space had gone to everybody but clients. Um, so obviously, it's, it's gotten a lot better since then. And some of the funds we track have actually been leaders in, in, in making it somewhat more rational, but it's still an area that could be very expensive to invest in. And the other is, is the fine print and the policies. And you know, so you get hit by a flood, but it turns out the flood was from a storm surge. Um, so there are plenty of funds this year, uh, including some very popular funds that have actually gone down in a year where everybody else has gone up. And so you know, th- this is an area, if you, if you poll institutional investors and you say, where do I get the most diversification bang for the buck? Managed futures is always at the top of the list. Going back to your point, zero correlation over time. And it's hit the trifecta of gains during the dot-com crisis, the GFC, and this year. The, the, the problem is it's been very, very difficult for people to access, and we're trying to make it simple and easy, not for the institutional investors who can do it, and they've done it successfully, but rather for the trillions of dollars of ETF-based model portfolios that have never had an access point to get into this space. So, Joel, I have uh, kind of trolled Andrew a little bit on Twitter by calling his fund the arc of the Fed hiking era. Mm. Um, because, you know, Kathy Wood is obviously do legendary. You do you get a commission for that? <laughs> sounds, it sounds pretty good. Well, if you're on Twitter, not everybody's a Kathy fan. I mean, I'd say almost the majority, especially the professionals. They just, they, she, she really gets under their skin. Um, and so obviously she's down 70% in the past like year or two, not having a good time, although the investors are pretty loyal. But the reason I say that is because if you look at ARC's flowchart and DBMFs, they're, they sort of hung in oblivion for a while and then bam, The outperformance started. The people came. You had the shiny object moment up 32% this year, which is phenomenal because the market's down, what, 20% or something like that? So that's a 50 percentage point above it. One billion in assets were 1.1 billion. That doesn't seem like a lot, but relative to alts, that's 20% market share of the category. I don't think I've ever seen a fund go from nothing to 20% market share in a year. So in a way, even though you're a smaller scale, it is an arc type phenomenon in that category. And the question I would have for you is, now that you've got all this love and people, you know, kind of going to that shininess, let's say the Fed pivots or they just say we're done hiking and that, you know, that kind of turns on that whole arc trade again. Um, do you prepare them for like maybe the fact that it won't be up 32% every year? I mean, how, how's that going? And is that like a, fe- like a fear of yours that like what goes up comes down? I mean, I don't know. I'm just curious where your head's at on that. Well, there, there are a couple of differences to ARC. One is I'm not going to tell people that we're going to make 30 or 40% a year. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's, let's, let's get that very straight. Uh, um, uh, the other difference, though, or, or actually an interesting similarity is, you know, and, and you and I have exchanged thoughts on this, is that part of the reason ARC started out as a stock picking story. And then over time, people realized it really wasn't as much a stock picking story as access to a particular strategy, a thematic strategy that, that, that people didn't have access to otherwise. And, you know, as I've also said, I'm, I'm a you know, huge respect for the decision that Kathy Wood made to launch those ETFs when she did, although I have also been critical of maybe some of the things she said publicly. Um, but, but that's what DBMF is, right? DBMF is supposed to be if instead of thematic play, it's the strategy play. And, and now what you're going to have in the beginning of 2023, the narrative is going to be it's not stocks, bonds, and real estate. That didn't work. It's probably not going to be stocks, bonds, and private equity. That didn't work. It's going to be stocks, bonds, and managed futures. Because if you need three legs of the stool, those are the three best legs to have over time. Our play is not to displace hedge funds. You know, in fact, I encourage everybody that I know who runs one of these strategies to set them up in ETFs and to broaden. Because I think, I think ETF allocators should have more opportunities and more options to invest in. But we're supposed to be the easy allocation. 
that you want to start with it, you don't know the space very well, you're supposed to be able to say, all right, boy, I can see how 10% of this in my portfolio would have made a huge difference this year. And yes, if the world comes back tomorrow, the other 90% is going to do great. But on the other hand, if, as a lot of hedge funds think today, that this could go on for a number of years as we try to renormalize, this could be a very, very valuable part. And we're supposed to be the easy way to get access. Also, a similarity between you and Kathy is you both go where Vanguard doesn't. Kathy's um, active share to uh, say the S&P 500 is like 98%, meaning only 2% overlap. You're going to have no overlap with Vanguard. Um, I call them VFZs, Vanguard Free Zones. Like, and <laughs> because just talk to an active manager like who's free like port, not like no taxes, <laughs> like yeah, duty free, duty free. Yeah, yeah, it, you can party there a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's yeah. still fun. Um, so I do think if you're serving up something that you can't get that hasn't been Vanguarded yet, you're also in a good spot as a as an active manager or a product provider because. The Vanguard really kills the 60-40. I mean, they're pushing so many people to get cheaper or even out of business. But this is something where you can come in here, have some creativity. Um, other f- firms like Simplify have done option overlays. So you could talk a little bit about the sort of changing dynamic of Active and the fact that Active might have a, I don't know, more of a home over here in the future versus sort of the traditional, let me get mostly like the S&P and try to pick a few stocks to outperform it by 2% that year. I think a lot of investors and allocators have looked at ETFs as basically being the low-cost index solution, and they've delivered in spades along that dimension. And you know, innovators like Vanguard, as well as a variety of different producers, have created a, a vast set of products that are available uh, that are sort of the picks and shovels that you might ha- have or want to build a portfolio. But I think we're really we're entering the next, really the next generation, or I'd say sort of the third generation. We sort of had the index, uh, the index ETF generation. Then we had uh, maybe the 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 style or the um, or the thematic uh, ETF generation, which you know I think we're sort of closing the book on more and more today. And now we're going to see sophisticated asset strategies in the package of an ETF. That's really what where we're going in terms of the ETF space. And the reason why that is, is that the ETF is the best structure for the investor. Hands down, whether it's taxes, liquidity, transparency, it is the best structure. And so what we're going to see is that sophisticated asset managers are going to, to use that structure when they can to to basically create a product which is much more investor-friendly than uh, than products like traditional LP positions, which, I mean, every advisor we talk to just just uh, it hates an LP structure. Everyone hates an LP structure, the paperwork, the taxes, all this stuff. It's terrible. When you can get that in the ETF structure, ETFs are not cheap anymore. They're ideal packages for sophisticated strategies. And so you know, I think if anything, I mean, Andrew was obviously uh, uh, on the very much the cutting edge of this uh, years ago. I think we're starting to see what will be a lot of institutional quality folks coming into the ETF space, utilizing its efficiencies uh, and and offering a lot of differentiated products in the way that the vanguards and the wisdom trees, et cetera, cannot. Are you seeing other um, ETF people trying to follow what you're doing at all? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I get uh, it's interesting. I, I when I started uh, Unlimited, I had never 
issued an ETF. I didn't know much about the ETF space, as you know. I came from the from the hedge, the traditional hedge fund space at Bridgewater, and I think the ETF community was very important. It was very helpful in sort of uh, coming and letting me ask questions and have the pick their brain about what's the best way to set these things up. Uh, and I came a long way in terms of understanding ETFs through that process over the course of the last year. And now I'm getting the calls from people who I knew in the two and twenty space, basically calling me up and saying, "What about?" having an ETF for a sophisticated structure. Let's talk about that. What do you do? How do you structure it? And you're like, what are, have you met HFND yet? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's interesting. Goldman just announced last week they're coming up with a white label business, which is major because there are smart, small white labors, uh, label issuers on the indie side. But Goldman doing it, and the reason they did it is they said they had institutional clients who were talking about converting their SMA or their hedge fund into an ETF. Now you can just convert it. You don't even need to launch a new one. So we could see a wave of existing funds uh, convert. My guess is if a fund's really successful and still charging two and twenty, they're not converting. But I do think some will look at this as an option because why? You know, it'd be like if you're a band and why wouldn't you offer your um, music digitally rather than just on CD and, and vinyl? It just makes sense. I'll tell I'll tell you what we're seeing on our side, which is that it, so we're as you mentioned we're one point one billion now, and with all of our competitors in the managed future space, we're maybe one point seven billion, and and simplifying CTA has had great success as well. Um, but how big should this space be? Right, it's there are trillions and trillions of dollars of ETF based model portfolios that have zero exposure to the space. It's there's four hundred billion dollars, maybe five hundred billion dollars of hedge fund assets allocated to this strategy, and essentially zero in the ETF world. So I'm getting calls from people who are saying. We can see this going to a $50 billion space, a $100 billion space, a $200 billion space over the next decade. And that all of a sudden changes the calculus for them because it's cheaper. As we know in the ETF land, you're not going to make as much money. But if you do it right, you can have that, 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 that massive scalability. So I do. I agree with Bob. I, think, I mean, I think the world has changed in a way. I have very, very strong views on what products I think will succeed and not, uh, which is a longer conversation. And again, is the money going to come from advisors and retail or institutions or both? It'll come from model portfolios. Okay. So which will be which will start with it'll start with the independent RIAs where we've seen demand. Then it'll migrate to the top tier wealth management platforms, and then once it gets big and becomes established, then you'll start to see institutional allocators. Right. Institutional allocators pulling money. For those who don't know, a model would be like something an advisor can just buy and has a uh, the whole portfolio already made. That way, the advisor can focus on getting new clients and like tax stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Bob. Since you're new to this space, I'm curious. Is there anything relatively new to the ETF space, I guess I should clarify. Is there anything that the ETF can't do that you wish it could do? I think for what we're trying to do, the ETF's the perfect package and, and wrapper. Um, there's natural limitations in terms of uh, running strategies that are particularly high frequency or with a great deal of turnover where the ETF wrapper isn't necessarily the the best strategy that that you can uh, or the best structure that you could use but i'll tell you the vast vast majority of sophisticated asset strategies are ones that uh that fit well into an ETF type structure and frankly you know would would really benefit from that very uh that very positive investor friendly structure relative to the, the typical things that are out there. Andrew, how about you? Since you've been you've been in the game for a bit, anything that uh, you could add to your wish list of things in ETF? 
well, could do? So, so the reason we do it the way that we do it, which is essentially copying the big trades cheaply with these very efficient liquid instruments, is because we don't run into those hurdles that you normally run into. Make no mistake, 95% of hedge fund strategy should never be put into an ETF. Right. It's. I mean, I wrote probably the seminal paper thus in 2014 on the mutual fund space that when you take a hedge fund strategy, you often kill it when you try to when you try to tie it up with those constraints. Um, so I think you know I, our view is that the 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 vehicle itself is extraordinarily valuable in part because you've had this exponential geometric growth of the space, um, but um, but you have to be very very careful about what you put into ETFs because those constraints are very very real. And if you have a strategy that doesn't fit with it very well, you will lose what you wanted in the process. And I think the history of hedge fund products in the ETF has been, in general, it's been pretty abysmal. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I have a question for you, Bob, about um, the fact that hedge funds are doing more and more private investments. So how do you end up going around replicating those things, which you can't? Well, I think mo most of uh, hedge fund businesses or what have traditionally been hedge fund businesses are looking to the private space uh, to generate returns either I mean, most of the time through other vehicles or structures that are less sort of traditional hedge fund type structures and more private vehicles in a variety of different ways. And so a lot of what we're doing, we're really focused here with HFND on uh, the traditional hedge fund space, the trading uh, of liquid markets to generate alpha, where some of those private market elements are are less relevant or or, or less impactful to the to what's generating the returns. Um, so, Bob, you know, I have a long history with Bridgewater and writing about Bridgewater because a couple interesting things. You talk about the ETF being such a a great vehicle that I would sometimes use Bridgewater's 13F to sort of explain to people, you have the biggest hedge fund in the world. You guys must have had four or five billion in ETFs. It might have been even more. I think it was a risk parity strategy or an all-weather fund used ETFs for. Um, and then I would say, and guess what? The EEM or whatever ticker they're in, my mom pays the same fee because it kills the share class system that the mutual fund world has. And I thought that's kind of cool. But then I, w I was looking at your 13F. This might have been 10 years ago. And I saw you were in, e in EEM. And IMG had come out like a few years before, and it was getting liquid. And IMG is like, I don't know, 15 bips. 
and EEM was like 69. So I did the math and I wrote this article for Bloomberg Opinion that said, if Bridgewater moved to, to EEM or IEMG, they would save $72 million a year. I was like, they could even hire like one or two people. That was my little joke. Anyway, that's for the, that's for the, the people in the back. So um, then you did. And I want to ask, was it my article? <laughs> I I uh, I was not uh, not involved in in uh, in the selection of the the ETFs while I was there. So, but I, but let me tell you, we're reading everything you guys write, and you know, there's no uh, no shame in grabbing great ideas from people who are outside <laughs> and using that to make your product better. So, uh, I, I want just five percent of that of the savings. That's not, all I ask. You're not going to get it. <laughs> um, Let's bring it back to investors right now. Um, what are you expecting your products to to do and evolve over the course of the next few months as we continue to see, um, you know, very uh, chaotic moment in the markets? So as I've been telling people, so managed futures broadly, and again, what we do is going to be dependent upon what these incredibly smart hedge funds who are spending all day, you know, with their computers trying to figure this stuff out. Um, but we've been in crash protection mode all year. And it's been basically, if you had to put it in, into a sentence, hedge funds, uh, these hedge funds were perfectly happy in a low inflation world, but they saw the breadcrumbs and they switched to a view that inflation was going to pick up. And, and that's played out through their portfolios. The thing about these strategies and what makes it very, very different from Kathy Wood is they change over time. Uh, they are, and so you look at this strategy over a very, very long period of time, they almost never go down more than 10% from, from a peak to a trough. They don't hold on to things with a white knuckle grip. And so it's going to be dependent upon what happens in the world. You know, when you talk about it as an active strategy, what makes the strategy valuable is that it will change what it does over time. And, and for, from an asset allocator's perspective, you have to be comfortable with that that, that, that the index itself is not static exposure. The index itself is what these hedge funds are doing and how they're making money over time. And over the past 22 years where we have good data on it, it's just simply the best diversifier for, for a 60-40 portfolio. And I think my 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 thought is similar to to what Andrew's saying in terms of uh, we in, with HFND. Really, what we're trying to do is uh, gain the wisdom of the hedge fund community in terms of how to navigate through what is, frankly, the most challenging investing environment that you know we've seen in fifteen plus years. And so, how exactly that plays out is, I think, pretty uncertain. And so. The question I think that should be on most investors' minds today is, do you essentially hold index positions and hope that that works out? Or do you hire the smartest, most sophisticated asset managers in the world to navigate through this environment that you know is very challenging and benefit from that dynamic through time? As Andrew says, that positioning, what what the positioning is today will inevitably evolve based upon the evolving set of economic conditions. And so uh, really what you're trying to do with these structures is in a very simple way, hire the best to navigate through this environment. But as a complement, I would assume, right, you would be a portion of a bigger pie, which would still contain the 60-40, right? Because it would be tough sell to get everybody to drop every 60-40, come over I mean, are are you able to get anybody to do that? I mean, I would assume that's hard for no, advisor. No, no. They're I, not doing that. I, I I think any if you go back to the structuring of any portfolio, you want to think about the returns that come from 
beta or you know, passive indexing invest, index investing, which are pretty reliable over long periods of time. And then you want to think about the returns from alpha as a complement. Uh, and you know, alpha is less reliable, less correlated. And so you certainly want, when you think about balancing those two things, your beta allocation, and your alpha allocation, it's not, you know, you put all your money on alpha and let it go because beta has a real important purpose. I think there's lots of work that investors could do to create a more balanced beta portfolio relative to where they are now, commodities, gold, things like that. But, you know, typically a good alts portfolio, if you look at the most sophisticated investors in the world, is maybe 30% of their portfolio, 20, 30% of their portfolio looking for alpha uh, related to alternative investment strategies or hedge fund strategies. Yeah, on the managed future side, the allocation is five to twenty percent. It's it's bounded in that range. Depends on depends it depends on your view of the world. It depends on what else you have. But it all it's always it should always be viewed as a compliment. Okay, last question, one that we often ask on trillions: favorite ETF ticker other than your own? Bob, I'm gonna start with you. I love the tickers that give you a little chuckle. So like uh, like an ahoy, I like that. Or honestly, the K-pop one, I thought yeah, it was great. Yeah. You know, just you know, when you're when you're going through this is very serious business, and so it's just every once in a while nice to get a little laugh and, out of it. Exactly. And ahoy, yeah. Okay. Wait a second, ahoy is that like a leveraged shipping ETF? I forget. Oh, what it, that... It's it's uh, it's a recent ETF uh, focused on uh, the the oceans, the global oceans. Yeah, yeah, oceans. that's it. Okay, ahoy, nice, Andrew. Uh, without a question, Happy H A P I, which is uh, uh, Dan Ariely and Harper Capital teamed up for that one. I'm a huge fan of Dan Ariely, the behavioral finance guru, and uh, I love that one. I'll give you I'll give you a second one as well, which is one of our competitors, which may be, uh, but uh, our competitor Simplify got CTA. And when I saw that come, I thought, oh, man. <laughs> that, it's definitely easier than DBMF, which Joel is still G-B-M-F. trying to master. I, it was all my chicken scraps, but we got it now. <laughs> so, so simplify. Paul, you are welcome. <laughs> Andrew, Bob, Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. on Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great being here. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time. You can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weppershow. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card.